I do hope that what I've been sharing with you the last couple of meetings that they've uh, they've drawn you closer to the Lord and that they you through them can seek and and know that that's what God desires of each one of us is continual ongoing communication with him this afternoon uh, becoming a water walker maybe a better title and, and actually I've been struggling with this because I'm actually been working on a book and so part of it has to do with that but I'm I think a better title may be, He Shall Lift You Up, How God Makes Us Ready to Live Forever. Because that's really what it's about, is God wants each one of us to live forever. There's absolutely no doubt about that. God does want us to live forever. Now, you heard me talk earlier today about the situation of Revelation chapter 6, where we are in the span of time, verse 13 and 14. You can write your name right between those two verses. Everything prior has happened. Verse 14 is not. We talked briefly about Daniel, that uh, we know exactly where we are right down there in the toenails of time. But the question begins to arise, well, as we see these things, as we look at everything, and I mean, we can list out a whole retinue of things. Matter of fact, one comes to mind. I don't know if any of you have seen the new website. It's tencommandmentsday.com. Has anybody seen that? TenCommandmentsDay.com, pretty incredible site. What's it do? It seems like now all evangelical Christendom wants to raise up the Ten Commandments before the people because of all the fights that have been going on and casting it out of everywhere. Now they're reacting, coming the other way and saying, we need to keep it, we need to raise it up. They commissioned a Jewish fellow from Israel to write the Ten Commandments down in a special way in Hebrew, the original Ten Commandments now in a commemorative gold pin so everybody can wear the Ten Commandments. And I uh, thought it was very interesting. I was showing uh, Richard O'Phil the site the other day. I said, what do you think about it, Richard? And he said, well, he said, praise God. This is fantastic because we have talked about the Fourth Commandment for so long and most of Christians says, what's the matter? It's all been nailed to the cross. But now they're going to hold it up before everybody and say, we need to keep the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is sacred. And all of a sudden, Seventh-day Adventists have a platform on which to talk about the fourth one. Interesting things in our times today that are happening. But why haven't we gone home? Perhaps if you turn with me to Revelation chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 may give a little bit of an indication of why we're still here. Revelation 7, verses 13 and 14. Then one of the elders said to me, Who are these people wearing white robes, and where did they come from? I said to him, Sir, you know. Then he told me, These are the people who are coming out of great and great and terrible suffering. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So God portrays here a people that have come out of terrible suffering, and they've washed their robes where? In the blood of the Lamb, totally covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, have gone through suffering and tribulation, have not given up their faith, have persevered, have had a battle and a march, a continual fight, taking up their cross and fighting for Jesus Christ. And then we read in Christ's Object Lessons, page 69, Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, 
then he will come to claim them as his own. Wow, what an incredible statement. Could it be? Could it be that God is waiting for a people that he can hold up before a watching universe and show before the people and say, see, the devil was a liar. These people can do it in my strength and my power and my energy. By my spirit, they can follow me. They can follow the Lamb wheresoever he goes. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus Christ. Could it be that this is what God is looking for from each one of us? One of our early pioneer writers wrote this, Wagner, in a bulletin, General Conference bulletin. There we go again with that feedback. In all of our Christian experience, we have left little loopholes along here and there for sin. We have never dared to come to the place where we would believe that the Christian life should be a sinless life. Wow, was he going out on a limb? We have not dared to believe it or preach it. But in that case, we cannot preach the law of God fully. Why not? Because we do not understand the power of justification by faith. What an incredible statement. This guy could be stoned today for saying such things. One more statement. But before probation ends, there will be a people so complete in him. Notice, notice the, the caveat, so complete in him that in spite of their sinful flesh, they will live sinless lives. They will live sinless lives in mortal flesh because he who has demonstrated that he has the power over all flesh lives in them. Lives a sinless life in sinful flesh. Wagner, great country, or general conference bulletin. Apparently, God is still waiting for a people. Is he waiting for you? Is he waiting for you? Now you heard my testimony, some of you, Friday evening, about going from a drug dealer, a thief, everything, to a Christian. Moving from, from one to the other. I'm afraid to move from this spot, though, as I move, because we're liable to get feedback again. In the, in the, yep, I did it here in the speaker. But uh, over time, all of that... Something I, I begin replacing all of that with study and prayer in a move to a whole new experience, a whole new level in life. But then I moved back again, and that first love was replaced again, and I was lost again. Now, today in the church, we have a very interesting situation. It, it, it might be likened to a Doonesbury cartoon. Some of you may have seen this cartoon sometime back, but it went something like this, and I've written it down. Reverend Scott, it's an interesting congregation, Mike. Members are far more consumer conscious than they used to be. The church has to deliver for its members. Counseling, social events, recovery programs, tutoring, fitness center, we have it all. Mike, well, where's God fit into all this? Reverend Scott, God, well, God's still the draw, for sure. He's got the big name, Mike. But uh, do you ever evoke it anymore, Reverend Scott? Um, well, frankly, Mike, God comes with a lot of baggage. You know, the whole, the whole male Eurocentric guilt thing. Does, does any of this sound familiar, you know? Christianity without the cross. Christianity without the cross. That's the... That's the premise that Satan so cleverly crafted 
so many years ago in the desert to Jesus Christ. You remember the situation. Jesus basically, there's no need to go to the cross. You don't need to go to the cross. Why? Why all you have to do is be kind and loving and, and get along. And what matter of fact, you know, I'll, I'll help you out. I'll help you out. There's no need to suffer. There's no need for you to die. Matter of fact, nobody's going to appreciate it anyway. All your disciples are going to forsake you. There's no need to die. No need for the cross. Just absolutely no need at all. Why? Why you relying on the Father's heavenly power and the Father's heavenly strength and come, come, there's, there's really no need for that. You can handle it because it's really not that big a deal. You, you can deal with it on your own. This, you know, this overcoming sin thing, it just really isn't practical. This really isn't practical. This, does any of this sound at all familiar? Well, it's, it's interesting to note that back in 1970, I think it was, there was a book that a fellow wrote. had a lot of, lot of uh, spirit of prophecy quotes, all kinds of other things in it. And it talked about becoming perfect and overcoming sin and all these things. And the incredible thing was, Ministry Magazine and the Seventh-day Adventist Church grabbed a hold of that book, promoted it all through Ministry Magazine, promoted it to all the ministers in the North American Division as this is, this is really it. Whoa, we wouldn't see that today. We wouldn't see that today. But uh, how does, we've got to ask, so how does God really view it? It doesn't matter how the church sees it. It doesn't matter how people in the church see it. It doesn't matter really how you and I see it. What really matters is how does God view it? How does God see all of this? Well, a, a good thing I think we can look at is the Lord gave us some examples. One is in John chapter 8. That's the story of Mary. And we know it as Mary of Magdalene. Now, the story, of course, is they brought Mary down. They caught her in the act of adultery, the very act of adultery set up and brought her there to Jesus. And what was the penalty for that? Death, right. Death was the penalty for this. Death was the penalty for this situation that she had been tricked into doing, but it probably came pretty easy to Mary, we know, so it, trick or not, she was in that practice and in that situation. But there she is at the feet of Jesus, and she knows any moment the rocks are going to fall, any moment she's going to get pounded to death by boulders. She can already probably look up and see that maybe some of the elders and the leaders of the church, the priests, have rocks in their hands. And then you know the story, Jesus bends over and in the dirt of the, the floor there, he begins scribbling, only it isn't scribbling. It's writing out the sins of every man standing in that circle. Mary, she doesn't even dare take her head up off the ground, looks just kind of maybe squinting out of the corner of her eye, just waiting for that first rock. And pretty soon, everybody's gone. Everybody's gone. Jesus says to her, you know, where are your, where are your accusers? Is there not anybody here? No, Lord. He says, neither do I condemn thee. Neither do I condemn thee. And we as a people tend to stop right there, don't we? That's it. That's, that's as far as we go. Neither do I condemn thee. Yep, I don't know they're still having trouble in the sound booth. But uh, what's the next five words that are spoken? 
Go and sin no more. What? Do you think he really meant it? Why would he say such a thing, I guess, if he didn't mean it? But maybe that's just an isolated situation. Maybe the Bible writers copied it down wrong. Maybe they, they wrote it incorrectly. Is there, any, is there any other place we find it? Remember the Pool of Bethesda. The Pool of Bethesda, Jesus comes across a man for 38 years. For 38 years he'd been a paralytic and he'd waited by those waters. Supposedly they said for the troubling of the waters as an angel would come down as Laura would have it. Stir those waters up and the first man that got into those waters, he would be the one that was healed. And they'll try as he might, as soon as he'd see the troubling of the waters, this man could never make it because his case was so severe. And Jesus saw that man and he singled that man out and he healed that man just like that. Just like that. And the man leaves and the first thing that man does, he runs to the temple. He's going to give a thank offering to God. Praise God. He is excited. And he's going to give his offering to the God of heaven and praise God. A little while later, Jesus comes and Jesus finds him in that sanctuary, in the temple giving alms to God. And he says, Beware that you sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Huh. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Well, is there anything else in Scripture that could substantiate that? Let's look at 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Beginning at verse 1, it seems like, uh, seems like John is pretty plain here. My little children, these things write I unto you that you do what? Sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keep not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whosoever keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith, he abideth in him, ought himself also to walk, even as he walked. Wow, that's pretty powerful stuff. Pretty powerful stuff indeed. My little children, I would that you sin not. But if you sin, how big a word is if? It isn't when, is it? The text does not say when you sin, it says if you sin. Incredible difference. Incredible difference. Matthew sixteen twenty four. Then Jesus said, and I'll just read this one for you. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It seems like we've gotten back to the argument of Satan in the church. Surely, surely we don't have to carry a cross. Surely we don't have to carry a burden. Surely we don't really have to try. We don't have to really do anything at all because it's all by the grace of God. Yes, it is. It is all by the grace of God. It is all by the power of God. Don't let anybody leave here today and say that Jim Ayer is saying anything different. Because it is all by the strength and power of God. His biddings are enabling. God bids us, go and sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon us. 
but it's all by the power and the strength of God. Now, the question's got to come, how is it done? How does it actually happen? Well, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Verse 5. Here's the key. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What kind of mind was that? Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Remember Jesus tells us to do what? We need to humble ourselves. David had a choice in many situations. When he blew it, and he said, I'd rather fall into the hands of God than a man. But the situation was, God wants us to humble ourselves. Wouldn't it be better to do the humbling ourselves rather than to have God have to do something to us and in our lives so that we might be humble? Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Now, this basic structure that you find from verse 5 onward for quite a few verses is called a chiastic structure, a chiasm. If we, if we drew it up on the board, it would look like a stair step because Jesus is up here as God. He humbles himself. He takes a step down. He becomes a servant. He takes another step down. He becomes the slave and takes a step down even unto death. Gets all the way down to the bottom. Jesus Christ humbles himself down, 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 down in this stair step. Now notice what happens. What, what are the next verses? Look at uh, verse 9. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him. God takes him from the cross and God the Father raises him up. Gives him a name which is above every name. Raises him up another stair step. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow up another step. Things in heaven and things in the earth. Another step. That every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Right back up. See this in your mind. Stair step down, 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 down. And then the Father lifts him up, up, up. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. You and I, we want to invert this thing into a pyramid. We want to climb up and up and up and up and up. And the only way that's going to happen for us when we get there is to go down and down and down and down. Totally opposite of what God desires for each one of us. Totally opposite of what God wants for us. We want to work and climb and, and dig and scrimp and, and do all these things. When God says, let this mind be in you. Humble ourselves. Go down, down. Take our cross. Take the cross all the way down here, become a servant to everybody else. Totally different paradigm. Totally different paradigm. How do we do this? What do we do? Well, some years ago, quite a few years ago now, I was down in the Dominican Republic and I was doing uh, meetings down there. And uh, the pastor said, would you please take this, uh, this uh, funeral service? Yeah, okay. He, he kind of pleased Jim and said, all right. And then afterwards, after I told him yes, then I started asking him a few questions. Was this guy a Christian? No. 
Did this guy like uh, anything about Christians? No. Did, did this fellow have any redeeming qualities? None that I can think of. And I think, oh boy. You know, and I said yes to this. What on earth am I going to do? So I, and, and the funeral was just not too long. You know, we were driving to the house almost by now. And uh, we get to the house and, and why there's people out in the street and there's people everywhere. And I think, oh Lord, what am I going to do? What, what am I going to preach to this guy? Or the, these people. And, uh, you know, the first thing they did, they brought me up right in front of the casket, put me right there, touching the casket, and it's an open casket. And so the guy is staring up, looking at me, and I'm thinking, and I've got to preach his funeral, and he didn't like Christians, he didn't like anything about anything I represent, what am I going to do? And I thought, well, praise the Lord, I've, I've look out for the souls of everybody else here, and, and I preached the second coming of Christ, and invited everybody to come to my meetings that night. And, and, there was, and, and there was a lot of people who showed up. But you know, the interesting thing to me was, this guy laid there the whole time, and he didn't say a word about what I was preaching. Not a word. Didn't bother him a bit. Why? Why? It, see, it wasn't, it wasn't a trick question. My wife answered it. He was dead. He was dead. Today, I think we're burying too many people in the baptismal font, and they're still alive. Maybe too many of us have gone down the watery grave and we wanted to come up alive. We didn't want to die in the tank. Jesus died. Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. He humbled himself and he died on Calvary's cross. And Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. Paul says, how often did Paul die? He needed to do it every single day. Every day we need to refresh that commitment to God. Today, Lord, I die. None of myself today and all of you. To only today. Only today. The sanctuary gives us, gives us an inkling of what really happens. If you look back in the sanctuary of old, you remember the Day of Atonement. We talked a little earlier about 1844 and the Great Day of Atonement. But on that special day, everybody was supposed to afflict their souls. Find out, God, is there any sin in my life, any place? Take everything out of my life. Get it all out of my life, Lord. And then the high priest, oh, the high priest, he was in a special situation. You remember, he wanted to make very certain that everything was okay with he and God. They would tie a rope to his ankle. He had the bell and the pomegranate. And as he'd walk into the sanctuary... When he got in there with the Shekinah glory, if there was any sin left in his life, you see, the situation is the glory of God is an all-consuming fire to sin. And if there'd been any sin in his life whatsoever, poof, crispy critter. That's it. And they would drag him out by the rope. They couldn't go in there themselves. They would drag him out by the, by the ankle. It would make you want to make certain that you had everything right with God. But understand, the real important point is, who's the temple today? Where does God reside today? Yeah, in us, in me. Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, can God reside, can the Holy Spirit reside in your life and sin cohabitate? I think not. I think not as we invite moment by moment. Now remember, there is a situation of sanctification. God opens another door in our life, I think, continually. You know, there are more rooms in our life sometimes when we 
that, what's the word I'm looking for? Anyway, there's lots of rooms in our lives and we don't want to admit it. That's the bottom line. And sometimes we don't even know they're there. We've buried them so deep. But God continually, by the power of the Holy Spirit, every day opens another door. I believe that's the real sanctification. And every day God says, here's more sin. What happens? Lord, go away. I like this one. I want to keep this one. And the Holy Spirit moves out of way. But what God wants us to do is every day invite him in, open the doors, and let the Holy Spirit go in and consume it away. Totally eat it up. Give us power and strength over all of it. Guys, you, you probably appreciate this maybe more, but uh, summertime, driving down the street, a scantily clad lady walks by, and you've got two things you can do. The Holy Spirit says, careful, you can take a second look, or you can just keep you choose to keep your eyes on the road, right? If you choose to keep your eyes on the road, the first glance, I can't say that was a freebie, that probably conveys the wrong thing. <laughs> but but that's simply, that's simply knowing that there's a temptation of sin. If you turn and look the second time, that's sin. Because the second time you want to look. But the Holy Spirit and God and the power of God dwelling in your life on a daily basis can allow you to keep your eyes on the road. Is that works? No, I don't think that's works, but that's taking up your cross. Because it's work taking up the cross. Whole different situation. Whole different situation. Now, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, gives us another inkling of this. Paul says to us, And be ye not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is good and acceptable in the perfect will of God. The word transforming there is metamorpho. Metamorpho. Anybody heard of the word metamorphosis? Yeah, from worms to a butterfly. How does it work? Well, I'm not exactly certain how it works, not being a biology major, but it works in God's power and God's strength from a worm to a butterfly. Paul says, go from worms, brothers and sisters, go from worms by the power of God to butterflies. God raises us up. We can soar above the problems. We can soar above those things which just so easily beset us. What's the process? We've talked the last couple of meetings about the process, prayer and study, getting to know the one who has the power. We are tempted to think that we can do so much more than Jesus did in many ways. We can get along without the power of the Father. Jesus knew when he came to earth to represent you and me to do it like you and I have to do it, that he knew he couldn't get along without the Father's power, but you and I try and go along without the Father's power. It's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. We are not going to make it if we don't have the power of God in our lives on a daily basis. And that comes by prayer and study of his word. You know the word, you've thought about the word, how sacred, how powerful the word is. By the words, the heavens were what? By the words, the heavens were made. Incredible creative power. Jesus spoke. And it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. You see him out on the Sea of Galilee, raises up his arm and says, Peace be still. And billions and billions of gallons of water raging on revolutionary storm on the Sea of Galilee just 
smooth out like a mirror. Everybody says, what manner of man is this? Why, even the winds and the waves obey him. Why? He was God incarnate, but he was representing and doing things the way you and I have to in the strength of the Father because he said, of mine own self I do how much? Nothing. He paved the way for you and me. He showed us the way. Let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus. Greater works, he says, we will do than he. Why? Because the devil is a lot stronger now. But this God, it's the same God. Same God, same power, same strength, same recreative power. He can move us from worms to butterflies. Incredible situation. Used to, for years, I taught stop smoking clinics. Did many of the, and there used to be five-day clinics in the days when they had five-day plans. I don't know if any of you here even remember those, but you know, you'd see these people, boy, we'd have them on the second floor or something like that. They'd come on there, <coughs> they're coughing and they're, they're, you know, some pink puffers and some blue bloaters and, and uh, they're, just, they're just having terrible troubles. But by, you know, after, after good food and good nutrition and speaking with them about getting proper exercise and, and monitoring everything that they, their intake, all these good things, and reaching out for the power of God to overcome smoking in their lives by that fifth night, they're pinking up, they're breathing easier, they got a smile on their faces, whole transformation. And then I'd invite them, say, come on up, one of you. Somebody come up, a volunteer. I give them a big old two before, a 16-penny nail and a hammer. And I'd say, hammer that in there. Bang, 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 bang. And with some look of accomplishment, they'd smile and hand me back the hammer. I said, no, no, now take out the nail. Okay. And they pull out the nail. Second later, I say, okay, now pull out the hole. And, and everybody just, you know, kind of gathered. We pull out the hole. We pull out the hole. Right. You can't pull out the hole. And that's the way it is here. The hole represents a habit. But through these five nights, you've been taught how to live above that habit. You now have the tools to live above that habit. You've, you're eating proper. You're getting good rest. You're do, getting good exercise. You're reaching out to the power of heaven. And so now you have the tools to live above that habit. So as time goes on, I write habit on the board. As another five, six, seven days go on, what's left? You erase the H and there's a bit. A bit is left. A little more time goes on and you're learning a little more and things and pretty soon you can erase the A and what's left? Bit. A little time, more time goes on and you can erase the, the uh, B. That was the word I was looking for. Now what remains? It. It, brothers and sisters, is the old sinful flesh, the old sinful life. It's going to remain until the transformation time when Jesus comes and takes this old vile body, this old sinful human self, and destroys this old body and gives us a new vibrant body. But what we're going to take with us to heaven starting now is our character. Our character. This is what God wants to fashion in us and mold and make and shape us now by His power by his strength. You remember the story when Jesus was out there feeding the 5,000? Whoa, what a day. Another incredible creative act. From a few loaves and a few fishes, he feeds 5,000 men besides women and children. Awesome day. They think he's so good, they're going to take him right then and crown him king. Why, this man can feed all the armies of Israel. We can beat all the Romans. When we've got a guy who can produce, well, he can heal all the sick, he can raise our dead, he can feed everybody. What an army we're going to be. 
Jesus knows immediately he's got to nip it in the bud. He grabs the disciples and says, get to the boat, head out, get away from here, and he disperses the people immediately. And then he goes up and spends a huge amount of time in prayer to the Father. He watches the disciples out there on the lake. The disciples don't leave right away, though. The disciples are arguing and everything. They're getting upset at one another and at each other and said, we shouldn't have paid any attention to him. We should have grabbed him. We should have helped him make him king. We, sh- we shouldn't have left. And they're arguing and fighting, and pretty soon they all, we better shove off. Jesus told us to. So out in the lake they go, and as their, their minds, you can just see the, the roll and the boil and the, everything going on in their minds, and they get out there, and so God gives them a little more to think about. It's kind of like what they were doing on the inside transmitted to the outside. And pretty soon the waves are billowing, the storm is boiling, and they're rowing and rowing and rowing, and they should have been across to the other side already. Matter of fact, had they left when Jesus said, they probably would have been to the other side already. But here they are. Now Jesus comes walking on the water in the third watch. They figure it's an omen, they're going to die. They start yelling out, and the first thing Jesus said is, be calm, it is I. Be calm. Let peace be in your life. Jesus always wants to bring peace in our lives. Always wants to bring that calm in our lives. Peace I bring you, not as the world brings it to you. The peace I give And then Peter, you know Peter's always Peter. But Peter says, Lord, if it's really you, bid me to come to you. Now you've got to ask, why on earth did Peter even say such a thing? Maybe it was just, you know, he's always impetuous. He always just shoots off his mouth and never thinks, kind of like me. And Jesus said, come on. And he jumps out of the boat. Now we've got to, I think we've got to at least look back and say, why would Peter jump out of the boat? You know, he was a fisherman. He knows you sink in water. (laughs) He knows how deep the lake is, right? I would imagine he had a good idea how deep the lake was, and it was deeper than Peter. And But he gets out of the boat. Why? I think it's because Peter had seen the power that Jesus had demonstrated for a long time. Matter of fact, sometime before, Jesus had sent out all the disciples. He'd sent out the 70. And he did what? He gave them power over demons. He gave them power to raise the dead. He gave them power to heal the sick. All of these things. And the disciples went. And you remember their report when they came back? All of these things. We have done. All of these things we've done. We've done it all. We've raised the dead. We've healed the sick. We've cast out demons in your name, Lord. It works. It works. You've got the power. And so I believe the reason Peter got out of the boat is because he'd been with Jesus. He'd seen the power of God to change lives, to mold, to make, and to shape, to raise the dead, to do all these incredible things. He'd been in villages when Jesus... And the disciples had walked through a village. There wouldn't be a sick person left. Jesus broke up every funeral he ever attended by raising the dead. The power of God. And so Peter gets out of the boat, believing, fully believing that God has the power to do this little thing too. Gets out of the boat and starts walking. And then, of course, you know, here we go again. If you sin, he turns around, looks at the other guys in the boat. (laughs) You guys didn't have the guts to do this. Look at me. Here I am. And of course, as he turned around, what happens? It's, it's such a lesson for each one of us, we cannot miss it. Because this is where the strength lies. He took his eyes off of Jesus. And in that moment, Peter's getting soggy feet, and the next moment he's getting a cold waist. 
And he reaches out and he delivers what may be the shortest prayer in all of the Bible, said, Lord, save me. And Jesus reaches out, grabs Peter, and lifts him up. Praise God. And then the two of them continue walking to the boat. You know, I think God wants us to be water walkers. How is it? Is it anything we do on our own? Perhaps not from the story, it's not. It's not anything at all we do on our own. God makes certain somehow here in this recorded story that we know we cannot of our own do how much? Anything. We can't do a thing on our own. But with God, all things are possible. All things are possible. Is there anything God says, ask? Is there anything too hard for me? Is there one thing anybody here can come up with that's too hard for God? I, if there is, I don't think you ought to repeat it, probably. Because it would sound awfully funny if there's anything too hard for God. The only thing, actually, if there was something, it's what the little girl said, you know, is basically is what's too hard for God is something we choose for him not to do in our lives. That's too hard for God simply because he, he only goes where he's invited. God wants you, is looking to invite you moment by moment, day by day, to live in the temple, in your temple, to burn up every evidence of sin, to burn up every evidence of self, to burn up every incident of pride, and to make you saints that he can hold up before the watching universe and say, here are the ones, here are those that have gone through all the tribulation, all the struggles, and they've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. They've accepted the complete sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Done all of these things. There's, a, there's something that for a lot of years I've done in evangelistic meetings. And that's wanted to make a date with people. A date on the second Sabbath in the new earth. Under the tree of life. Now, why the second Sabbath? I kind of think there'll be too much going on in the first Sabbath, so I just arbitrarily picked the second Sabbath. But I'd like to meet all of you, the second Sabbath under the tree of life, to fellowship and friendship and share the joys of eternity and say, yeah, remember that time, you know, I'm struggling with this or with that, and God touched my heart that day, that moment. I committed everything to Him, and I'm here because of God, because of that wonderful day. I wonder, is there anybody here today that might want to make that full commitment to, to meet me under the tree of life on that second Sabbath? Is there anybody here? Amen. Amen. The Lord gives us a beautiful closing in Jude chapter 1, verse 24. Now unto him, unto him who is able to keep you from falling. <laughs> what an incredible thing. And to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. What an incredible thing. One more statement. This is found in... Uh, where is it found? I'll tell you later. God would send every angel in heaven to the aid of the one who places his whole dependence on Christ rather than allow him to be overcome. Isn't that an incredible statement? What a God we serve. God would send every angel in heaven to the aid of the one who places his whole dependence on Christ rather than allow him to be overcome. 
Would you stand with me this afternoon if you want to give your whole dependence, place it all upon Jesus Christ? Heavenly Father, Lord, may there be nothing that I've said today that can be construed as us doing anything, Lord, other than choosing you moment by moment, asking and inviting you into our lives and your power to make us overcomers. Lord, we want to do your will. We, Lord, ask to help us take up our cross, every day, every second, every moment, and become like you. We want to see you come in the clouds of heaven. Father, I pray right now that you grant your Holy Spirit to every dear soul here today. Stir us, move us, make us, shape us into your image. For when you come, miracle of miracles we shall know, and we will look and say, Behold, we will become like you. We are like you. Praise God. In Jesus' name, amen.